We're going to get into Acts 4 this morning, if you, uh, the series, just to kind of recap just a little bit. We began with Acts 1 uh, a few weeks ago, and we, we began by talking about in Acts 1 that there's a waiting involved in learning to become the people of God, that whatever God is doing here in the world requires us to understand that we belong to a people, that God's not saving a collection of individuals who are going to heaven. God's forming a new community of people even here in the earth. And so there's all kinds of things in Acts 1 that, that, that show that and demonstrate that. And then in Acts 2, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit and what happened on the day of Pentecost. And you heard Brad allude to it this morning, but this is Pentecost Sunday. If you grew up in a church that maybe kind of walked you through the church calendar, uh, you know, all that is is just a way of marking time that centers on the story of Jesus. Uh, We have plenty of other ways of marking time. Usually we mark time either by the events in our own lives, our own vacations, or by, you know, a Roman calendar named after uh, Roman gods and all that. So I like the church calendar because it marks time by the life of Christ. And so the story of Jesus kind of begins in November, you know, in December with Advent, Christmas, all this stuff. And you come up to this moment here, and this is Pentecost Sunday. It's, It's the eighth Sunday after Easter. And so here we are kind of remembering the day when Jesus, when God poured out the Holy Spirit uh, upon the church and kind of gave life to the church. And so when we talked about Acts 2, it was a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about that and how the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence with us to proclaim Christ. And then last week we talked about Acts 3 and we looked at uh, Peter and John saying to the crippled man, rise and walk in the name of Jesus. And we talked about what is this thing that we have in Jesus' name. It's not magic, it's not a formula, but there is the power of God at work on the earth Uh, in a real way, through the people of God. Here we are in Acts 4, and we're about to see the church facing opposition. Now, how many of you, I don't know how many of you read um, fiction novels or whatever, but have you ever read an author where you read their first book and then you really liked it, you said, I'm going to read their second book, and you kind of liked that, and then you read their third book, and then you realize, wait a minute, this guy only has one story to tell. You know, it's kind of retelling it the same story, but in three different times. That's kind of what Luke is doing here. Luke really has one story to tell. It's the story of God becoming king and reigning in the world. And he tells it in his gospel, the gospel of Luke. And he tells it in this book, the book of Acts. It's very much the same story. In fact, if you were to plot out the main events in Jesus's life that Luke tells us, and then plot out the events of the church's life in the book of Acts, you would find all kinds of overlap. For example, in in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up and says, Hey, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to do this and this and this and this. And then in the very next chapter, we see Jesus healing a man who was crippled, the paralytic. And then shortly after that, he faces opposition. Well, here we are in Acts. In Acts 2, we have the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. And then in Acts 3, they heal a crippled man. And now in Acts 4, guess what's coming? Opposition. Um... It's probably not a warm and fuzzy memory for most of us to recall your junior high years. Um, My junior high years were particularly uh, challenging because it was during junior high that I moved from Malaysia to America. I grew up in Malaysia. It's about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back. And... um, when I was 10, my, my parents felt the Lord was leading them to go to Bible school, and so they made these huge sacrifices and moved my sister and I, our whole family, uh, with them to Portland, Oregon. And uh, I, I remember starting the sixth grade already feeling, you know, out of place, already feeling a little bit like I didn't quite fit in. I was young for the class and all of this stuff. And, and Malaysia, you see, was a British colony. And uh, so when I learned to speak English, which is my first language, it was my parents' first language, and when all of us learned to speak English, we kind of learned it 
uh, the way the British speak it, you know, with the, the Queen's English. And, uh, and so there was something that happened in class one day, and I answered, a, I raised my hand to answer the question, and I said the word airplane. And my teacher said, I'm sorry, what was that? I said airplane. And he says, stand up, stand up in front of the whole class, because that helps sixth graders not feel awkward. <laughs> and, 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 and he had me stand up, and then he says, now listen, class, he's saying airplane. Now that's not correct. And he says, it needs to be airplane. Now say it with me, air. And all of a sudden he became Henry Egan's and I was my fair lady having a phonetics lesson in the front of the whole class. And, uh, you know, he was a good teacher. And the truth is there's lots of wonderful things that he did, you know, for the rest of the year. And he taught us some great things. But that moment was a, was a moment that sort of drove home the point, yeah, you don't really fit in. Now, if you're wondering how I got to, from that, from airplane, to talking like this, it's because when you're, when you're in junior high, you learn very quickly what you have to do to adapt. And so I would stand in front of the mirror and practice my American accent, you know. So here I am today. I can speak American. Um, but all of us probably have that moment, that story when we say, you know what, I, I, this was the moment when I realized I don't belong or I don't fit in. This story in Acts 4 is kind of the church hitting adolescence. Acts 2, they're newborn, you know, they're, they're kind of in the world, they're learning to do stuff. Acts 3, they're learning to walk in Jesus' name. And here we are, this is, this is Acts 4, this is the church going through adolescence, realizing that you don't fit in here. In Acts 3, we know that they were going to the temple to pray. They considered them part of kind of this Jewish faith, and they saw Jesus as the culmination of the Abraham story that they had believed with fellow Jews. And now, all of a sudden, in Acts 4, they realize that the Jewish rulers, they don't really want anything to do with these guys. So let's turn in your Bibles, if you would. Acts 4, verse 1. We'll read the first seven verses. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple of the temple guard, and the Sadducees confronted them. They were incensed that the apostles were teaching the people and announcing that the resurrection of the dead was happening because of Jesus. And they seized Peter and John and put them in prison until the next day, for it was already evening. And many who heard the word became believers, and their number grew to about 5,000. The next day, the leaders, elders, and legal experts gathered in Jerusalem along with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others from the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and asked, by what power or in what name did you do this? If you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, which I think is a wonderful habit to do, you should underline that verse or that, that question. By what power, in what name did you do this? In fact, the word name shows up in several key places throughout Acts 4. There's a power struggle going on. I debated calling my talk today the power struggle because that's what this chapter is about. It's about a power struggle. Now imagine me, with me, if you will, kind of the boxing arena. There's a boxing ring and we're setting up the fight. Luke is setting up the fight. And he says, in one corner you have the Sadducees and the temple guard and the captain and, and all these words and titles that really don't mean much to us. We're kind of like, yeah, I don't know who those people are. And we know in the other corner of the ring are Peter and John speaking in Jesus' name. And we want to know, okay, so, so who are these guys and why did they face opposition? Kind of the fallacy that, that maybe kind of goes around here when we think about persecution and why the early church faced persecution is we tend to compare it to what we remember of the old Soviet Union or maybe what we, remember, what we know about North Korea or, or, or China. Or, and we tend to think of the Roman Empire as a secular state 
that oppressed people of faith. And we think that because that's what we know, and that's kind of the 20th century, and that's the story that we're familiar with. But the Roman Empire was not like that at all. In fact, in the first century, Rome celebrated many religions. They allowed many gods. and many, Rome took over, took over, if you will, ruling the world from the Greeks. Not like the Greeks handed it to them. They took it from them. But Rome was brilliant in this way. They basically said to different cultures and different people groups, okay, look, you can continue. You can worship the way you worship. You can do what you do. You can have your way of life. You can even speak the Greek language since this is what you're used to. You can continue. Life is normal. (gasps) One condition, you're going to pay us a lot of taxes. Sounds familiar, right? There's this this arrangement here where it says you can have everything you want as long as you give us all the money. And so Rome allowed other cultures and other religions to flourish and coexist. All they wanted was control and money. And so why is it that Christians all of a sudden are being picked on? Why these guys? Why not not Jews? Why not other religions? Why not? I mean, look, there's all kinds of gods and Mars and Venus. And why, why not? Why Jesus? Because what Christians were claiming was not simply a new religion, but a new king. What Christians were proclaiming was not simply a new religion, but a new king. Did you know that many of the titles that we use for Jesus were first used for Caesar? When Caesar, when Julius Caesar died, they they said, okay, this guy is God. He was a God. He was divine. And when his son Augustus had taken over, he didn't stop the rumor because if your dad's God, what does that make you? The son of God. That's right. And then because of the great peace that Rome introduced to the world, the Pax Romana, they said of Caesar, you are the prince of peace. You're the king of all kings because you've conquered. They would mint coins because they didn't have newspaper. This is pre the printing press, obviously. So their only way of spreading the news of a new Caesar or of Caesar's birth was to print it on a coin. And so they would print on coin the word in Greek, euangelion. What is that word? It's the word that we use for gospel. The gospel, the good news is that Caesar is Lord. That was what Rome said. The good news is that Caesar is Lord. And then on the coins it would say words like freedom, peace. As if to say Caesar is Lord and because Caesar is Lord there is now freedom and peace and stuff for all. And that's why at a sporting event, when they would build a new arena for a sporting event, Caesar would come and make an appearance. And when he would come, everyone would stand and say, Caesar, the Lord and Savior. Now imagine a band of Jewish followers who all of a sudden stand up one day and they say, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Only Jesus brings freedom and peace and salvation. They might as well have added, and Caesar is not. The reason early Christians were persecuted was because they were politically subversive, not because they were just a a religion that, that, that the state didn't like. It was a politically subversive now you think about this chapter and you say, well, Acts 4, there's, not, there's, there's some Roman, Roman guys in there. There's the captain of the temple guard and all that. But Luke goes through the trouble to name some people. He names the high priest and he names others from the high priest's family. And he names the Sadducees. Who are these people? Someday over coffee, I could tell you stories of how the Sadducees descended from the Maccabeans and what all that meant and the Maccabean revolt. 
But for us this morning, it's enough to say that the Sadducees were people who were in power over the temple. These were the guys who ran the temple. But they ran the temple thanks to an unholy alliance with the Roman state, the Roman Empire. They put God and empire in the same conversation and they said, this is how we'll get things done. The Sadducees weren't looking for a Messiah. They believed Messiah was already ruling, but he was ruling through the power of state mixed with the power of God. Interesting, isn't it? And so the Sadducees ran the temple and kind of had charge of of who gave sacrifices and and how much money they paid and all this stuff. Now, why do you think the Roman guards collaborated and and helped them police the temple. Why did the Roman guards cooperate? Because the Roman guards got a cut of what was going on. This was an economic arrangement. This was an unholy alliance between God and empire for the sake of power and money. Same story, different century. We don't have a hard time imagining that because we can kind of picture that. Okay, first century, this is what's going on. And the Sadducees, in the name of God, are keeping control over things. And all of a sudden, in walk Peter and John. And the man who's been kept outside the temple since birth, because the Sadducees said, you can't come into the temple, you're crippled. That must mean that God is judging you for a sin. And so these Sadducees had a power system all worked out. Can I tell you something? The rulers of this world gain power by saying who's in and who's out. The way of the world is the way of exclusion. The way of the world is the way of violence and force and suffering because it's a way of power. It's a way of saying, these are the ones who are in, these are the ones who are not, and we'll collude with whoever we need to collude with. We'll make alliances with whoever we need to make alliances with because this gives us the illusion of freedom and the illusion of peace and the illusion of stability. But as long as I'm getting money and you're getting money, we're all happy. And Peter and John walk in and they say, wait a minute, you can't keep this guy out of the temple just because he's crippled? And they speak healing to him and this guy comes in. Something is challenging their power. Verse 8, and then Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, answered, leaders of the people and elders, are we being examined today because something good was done for a sick person, a good deed that healed him? Peter knows what's up. He knows what's going on. He's saying it as if to say, well, is this so subversive, what we've done? But it is, because it means their rules don't apply. And if so, then... You, all, you and all the people of Israel need to know that this man stands healthy before you because of the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. Skip down a few verses to verse 15. After ordering them to wait outside, the council members began to confer with each other. What should we do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem is aware of the sign performed through them. It's obvious to everyone and we can't deny it to keep it from spreading further among the people. We need to warn them not to speak to anyone in this name. You can circle name again. When they called Peter and John back, they demanded that they all stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John responded, it's up to you to determine whether it's right before God to obey you rather than God. little sarcasm. But as for us, we can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. If we were to ask ourselves here, as we're looking at this text, why were they bothered by Peter and John? 
Why were these rulers, the powers of the world, the, the power brokers of that world, why were they bothered by Peter and John? First of all, because Peter and John were proclaiming that Jesus is the ultimate authority. They were basically saying, guys, the gig's up. You can have a nice little pretend game here, pretending that you're in charge and that this is real freedom and this is real peace. Meanwhile, you're excluding the weak and, 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 and oppressing the poor. But you know what? The gig is up. Jesus is the ultimate authority. But secondly, Peter and John were preaching the resurrection. So, well, what's so subversive about that? Why is that politically subversive? Do you know the weapon of the tyrant? The only weapon the tyrant has ultimately is death. Do it my way or else. Or else what? Or else I'll do this. Or oh, yeah, and then what? Then I'll do this. Oh yeah, and then what? Then I'll kill you. That's what tyrants always say. That's what they did to Jesus. And when Peter and John go about preaching the resurrection, that's another way of saying, go ahead. Do your worst. It won't work. Imagine that. Imagine that. There are lots of things we're afraid of, but if we're honest, the ultimate fear really comes down to a fear of dying. And I don't want to die any more than anyone else does. But we live in a culture that insulates us from death and dying. We don't want to see it. Let's get all the people who are sick and let's put them in another building where we don't have to drive by it or look at it and think about it because I don't want to think about dying. That's Caesar's trick to make you think life is happy, happy, joy, joy. And if anyone disagrees, there's death. And Peter and John stand up and they say, what do you got? That old death trick? Yeah, you killed Jesus. Peter just said that. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him up. What's up now? This is Peter and John saying, you cannot stop what God is doing. Not even death can stop it. I want you to recognize just here what a powerful hope that is. Peter... In, in Acts 3, preached after he, he, he um, spoke healing to the crippled man. He said, one day Jesus is going to come back and he'll bring about the restoration of all things. Church, I want to tell you that your hope is so much better than heaven. Your hope is so much better than that God's going to evacuate us and get us out of here. Anybody who's ever been in a schoolyard fight knows that when dad has to pick you up and then you leave the bully, that you can't say you won. That's not winning. That's going home. <laughs> and Christians talk about Jesus as if Jesus has come in his nice car to say, come on, get in the SUV. Let's get out of here. That's not what he did. We're not waiting for Jesus to come and take us home. Peter says we're waiting for Jesus to bring about the restoration of all things. That's so much better. That's so much bigger. That means that everything that is sick and wrong and broken in this world, one day God the creator who does not abandon his creation will put it all back together again. That's resurrection. That's what it means to say that Peter and John were preaching the resurrection. They weren't preaching simply heaven or forgiveness. They were preaching resurrection. Interestingly, the Sadducees were the one Jewish sect that did not believe in resurrection. Wonder why? Because if there is no resurrection, then all there is is now. And if we're in charge now, then that's good for us, isn't it? Resurrection's bad news for all the power brokers of this world. Because it means they will not have the last say. It means tyrants and oppressors and thugs 
like the ones who the other night committed these awful atrocities in Syria, that thugs will not have the last word. The powers and rulers of this world will not have the final say. Resurrection means that Jesus is king and the world will see it one day. When we look at this text and say, how do we enter this story? Where are we in this story? I think about how we talk about Jesus. I understand why we say that Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior. It's a wonderful phrase meant to show that Jesus isn't distant, that you can talk to him, that he talks to you. And in as much as that phrase does that, it's a wonderful phrase. But sometimes that phrase, personal Lord and Savior, leads us to forget that the disciples never preached Jesus as the personal Lord and Savior. If you read the book of Acts, a third of the book of Acts is sermons. You're like, that sounds exciting. (laughs) Not one sermon says that Jesus is the personal Lord and Savior because Sometimes when we say personal Lord and Savior, what people hear or what we start to believe is that he's just my itty-bitty bobblehead Jesus. Just put on my dashboard, my pocket. It's my personal Lord. You can have your own personal. Look, if Peter and John had proclaimed Jesus as the personal Lord and Savior, Roman had said, that's cute. Keep going. But because they said Jesus is the Lord and Savior, that challenges rulers. It's like C.S. Lewis said, you know, when you look at the quote, the the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, you can't conclude that he was just a good teacher because the kinds of claims Jesus made, you would have to say, this guy is a raving lunatic or he's a pathological liar or he really is the Lord of all. I love that because you're not given this option to make a cute Jesus You only have one Jesus, and he's the king over all. And Acts begins by telling us about Jesus' ascension. Growing up in church, my whole life, I thought of the ascension as Jesus sort of going home. Kind of like E.T., you know, one day, just going back to where he came from. Ascension language, everything from clouds to ascending to the coming of the Son of Man, all of that language is lifted from Daniel 7 and all of these rich prophetic traditions. Ascension doesn't mean escape, it means enthronement. Did you know that? When we say Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, we're not saying he went back home. We're saying like a king ascends to the throne, Jesus ascended to the throne. So to say that there is no other name but the name of Jesus is to dethrone all other rulers. To say that there is no other name but the name of Jesus is to dethrone all other rulers, quote unquote, all other power brokers of the world who think they run the world because they can control economics and politics and power. The world runs on this. The world is full of men and women who are drunk with their imagined power. But we, the church, are supposed to be the ones that stand up in the middle of culture and say, you don't really rule. Jesus rules. Now, you maybe look at this and you think, well, Glenn, we we don't have Caesars in our day. I mean, we have have a nice, we have presidents. We're a democracy. I don't know. You said you grew up in Malaysia. Do you understand? You know? I've been in American school systems since I was 10. I get it. 
We have Caesars. We have Caesars that claim to rule the world and want us to be called by their name. We are names people. We want to know, are you this name or are you this name? Are you a Ford truck or Chevy truck? Are you Republican or Democrat? Are you American or not? I, I am, by the way. So I point that out too. We are names people. We like names to define us. But to dethrone all other rulers is to say there's only one name. It's not the name of a nation. As good, as wonderful as a nation is. It's not the name of a race. It's not the name of a church. It's not the name of a bank. It's not the name of a company. It's not the name of a corporation. It's not the name of a brand. It's not the name of a clothing. It's the name of Jesus above every other name. That's it. And let all other rulers be shown to be false. I was thinking about what this is like, and uh, I thought of this. I, uh, I'm a big Broncos fan. And um, let me slip this on real quick while they mute this. And uh, for my birthday a few months ago, my family got me this lovely sweatshirt. Not gaudy at all, you know. Doesn't stick out at all. Thankfully, orange is their new home color, so I'm in, I'm in the right shape here. Now, I have a buddy who has season tickets to Broncos games and over the last several years has been kind enough to take me to games. So I've, I'm looking forward to wearing this at our, my next home game that we go to, you know. Um, that, that should be exciting in all four quarters of the game. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, I love Tebow. So, so I, I remember being at the stadium and being at, uh, at some amazing experiences. I remember being at, at the playoff game against the Patriots back when Jake Plummer was our quarterback. And uh, Champ Bailey got the interception in the end zone and ran, almost ran it all the way before he got pushed out of bounds. I mean, I was screaming. I was there. I was there, I think, a few years later when, when Jay Cutler was the quarterback, and it was like home opener, and we're at home, we're playing the Chargers, and we're down by seven, and we, we're driving the ball, and Cutler, it's the famous Ed Hockey League call, where it should have been called a fumble, but they called it an incomplete, and he completes the pass, and they, they get a touchdown, and then instead of going for one to tie it, Shanahan goes for two, and they get it, we win, and I was there, and we were jumping up and down. There's something amazing that happens in a stadium <laughs> as people are spilling their drinks on you and hugging each other like they're long-lost friends. Nobody asks me ever what I do for a living, where I'm from, what church I go to, how I vote. All they see is this one name, and it's the name that trumps every other name in the stadium. <laughs> I am called by this name. <laughs> and everybody says, that's, that's all we need to know. High five, brother. <laughs> in, some way, in some ways, that's like us when we gather at church. We worship and we're jumping and we're dancing. We're saying, look, man, I don't know your background. I don't know what you came from this church, that church. But look, like Brad said, when we come to the table of the Lord, if, you're, if you call on the name of Jesus, if you're marked by the name of Jesus, good enough for me, brother. One name. But life isn't like being at 
mile high. Life is more like being at the Oakland Coliseum <laughs> and wearing Broncos gear. I've never done that. I don't want to ever do that. <laughs> but you can imagine what that's like. Everyone in black and silver and eye paint and spikes and whatever. And me saying, yeah, Bronco. <laughs> to say that there is no other name but the name of Jesus is to dethrone all other rulers. But it's also... To say that there's no other name but the name of Jesus is also to live in opposition to the way of the world. You will find yourself living against the way of the world. You'll find yourself living in Oakland Coliseum at this game, living against the grain of it. Look, I don't think you and I need to go looking for a fight. I don't think we need to be obnoxious. Paul repeatedly tells the first followers of Jesus, look, in as much as you can control it, live at peace with all men. You don't have to go looking for this. This is not about boycotts or protests, rallies, or any of this. That's not, that's, Peter and John don't stand up and try to reform culture. Do you know what, I, sometimes I think most of what we try to do in the name of God has nothing to do with lifting up the name of Jesus. It really has to do with trying to preserve the world as we knew it. Now that, I'm sorry if that's upsetting to you, but that's, if you really think about it, that might be true. The most of what, you're trying, what, what the church tries to do in God's name is not really about lifting up Jesus. It's just we're afraid that the world's changing and kids these days and what are they saying? And all we're trying to do is hang on to the world that we once had. And it's motivated by fear and self-preservation. But Peter and John aren't worried about that. They're not trying to say, listen, guys, don't, don't do this. and We need to change culture. That's not what they're doing. Peter and John stand up and announce that there's no other name but the name of Jesus. That's it. And in fact, when you do that, you may find yourself in the uncomfortable place of not being on one side or the other cleanly in a culture war. That's uncomfortable. I'll tell you, it's uncomfortable. Because you'll have people sort of upset at you from both sides. Wear this label. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to wear that label. Come on, how come you're not? No, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm just here to proclaim that Jesus rules over both of y'all. <laughs> and no, people don't like that. Because the world wants us to work with power. Work with power. Control. Create barriers for people to be outside the temple and for people to be inside the temple. The world runs by the power of exclusion. Jesus rules by the power of restoration. We're the ones looking for the broken person outside the walls and saying, in Jesus' name, be healed. Not the ones saying, keep them out. No, don't allow that. Protest this. Peter and John come and say, what? No. And because they choose to live that way, they find themselves being, they find themselves really upsetting the religious leaders. That's interesting, isn't it? If we do not face opposition from the world, maybe it's because we're not living in opposition to the way of the world. You don't have to go picking this fight. But when you truly lift up Jesus above every other name, it makes people upset. 
And maybe if life is so cozy, it's because we haven't really grasped what it means to lift up Jesus above every other name. Maybe we might find ourselves tempted to be like the Sadducees, making alliances with power for the sake of economic benefit, for the sake of the illusion of freedom and control. Maybe we find ourselves trying to do that because it's a way of hanging on to the world as we once knew it. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. I rule. One day they'll see it. That changes the way you think about the mission of the church. In one sense, you could say the mission of the church is not to change the world, but to announce that the world is already changed because of Jesus. Jesus has come into it. He died and rose. He is now the ruler of it. And we announce that calling people to, sur- to, to surrender. But it doesn't put this culture war pressure on us to fix and control When you end up doing that, you end up probably building barriers and walls and saying, you're in, you're out. And then you find yourself being more like the Sadducees and less like the church. Living this way, though, is wearying. It's not easy. It'll wear you out. It's no fun. It's no fun to call both sides to account for injustices and oppression. It's no fun to call the powers of this world to account for promising things they cannot give. It's no fun to be that person. It weighs on you. It wears on you. But when Peter and John are released from prison, they come back to the other believers and they begin to pray. And this is what they pray. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with complete confidence. Stretch out your hand to bring healing and enable signs and wonders to be performed through the name of Jesus, your holy servant. And after they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking God's word with confidence. They don't pray for favor. Sorry. They don't pray, God... Let the power brokers of this world endorse us. Let the power brokers of this world spread the gospel. They don't pray that. They don't pray that God would remove the opposition. They don't pray, God, make it easier. What they pray for is confidence. Now that is convicting to me. Because that's not how I would pray. I would pray, God, make it all go away. God, make it easier. Let everyone see that I'm right. (laughs) God, make it just, you know. They don't pray for the power brokers to come around because they know they won't. What they pray for is confidence to keep walking against the flow, against the way of the world. Church, that is what we're called to do. That is what we're called to be. To look for the places where the system has broken down, the places that's kept people outside the walls. A couple of weeks ago, I got to visit the women's clinic, the dream centers that we've started here in Colorado Springs. And it's an amazing thing, thing to think these are people that would be left outside the wall because the power brokers of our culture have found no way to care for them. And the church says, in Jesus' name, here is love. That's 
why we exist. To find the ones who are left out, who are broken, whom the powerful have said, you don't belong. And we say, actually, they're not in charge. Jesus is, you belong. Come on in. Let's pray this morning. I wonder if we can pray the same way the first followers of Jesus prayed. To pray not that God would remove all the opposition in our life, but to pray that God would give us confidence to keep preaching Christ. Today, as we've said, is Pentecost Sunday. We remember the Holy Spirit being given to us. So let's ask again to be filled with the Spirit. Father, we ask you to fill us with the Holy Spirit this morning. God, give us the power to proclaim Jesus even in the face of a world that's gone mad with power, a world that tries to control and arbitrate and say who's in and who's out. Give us confidence to keep preaching Christ, to keep going in the name of Jesus to the crippled person, the one who is broken, and saying, no, no, no. This is not the end for you. There's healing for you. There's hope for you. There's restoration for you. Make us that people, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Prayer team, if you come forward and stand in the front, if you need prayer this morning, come and let the pray over you. God bless you in your life. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Sunday.